all of these teachings are an invitation for a shift of identity, a profound opening from the stories the mind tells, the small sense of self, what's called the body of fear, to a place of freedom and ease, our true nature or Buddha nature. We begin again and again very simply by resting here in the present moment, just being, stopping doing, stopping making, stopping trying to control or change or manipulate and just centering ourselves in the reality of the present. In bullfighting, there's a place in the bullring where the bull feels safe. If he can reach this place, he stops running and can gather his full strength. He's no longer afraid. From the point of view of the matador, he becomes dangerous. And this place in the ring is different for every bull. It is the job of the matador to be sure that the bull does not have time to occupy this place of wholeness. This safe place is called the kerencia in bullfighting. And for human beings, there is also such a place. For when a person finds their kerencia in full view of the matador, they are calm and steady, wise. They've gathered their strength around them. And the silence of that moment is more secure than any hiding place. So we sit again and again, walk again and again, being present. And as we do in this openness of presence, there are body pains and restlessness, tension, sleepiness. Emotions come, all the unfinished business of our life, the grief we've carried and never taken time to weep, the plans and longings that are there to be heard, the memories and imaginations. And part of our task is to honor all these which are our human experiences as if we could bow to them, to make space for them to feel the breath and the center and let all these things rise and fall like the waves of the ocean. Not so easy. There's a story from Scandinavia that I believe illustrates some of the difficulty. There was a young princess named R. And unfortunately, her mother and father, the king and queen, became rather indebted to a large dragon. Dragons have gold, you know, and precious things. And somehow you know how it is in these times. Sometimes you have to uh, extend your credit a bit. And the dragon said, finally, well, it's fine and good that you have taken all this. And I now require you to repay me or else I would ask one other simple thing, to join your family. I would like to marry your daughter, R. Well, you know how it is sometimes with parents. And after some thought, they said, okay. (laughs) Called in the princess and said, dear, we have a little announcement to make. This is how it was in the old days. Mm -hmm. We've picked a beloved betrothed for you. Oh, yes, the dragon. Oh, my dear, what to do? But she was a relatively 
wise young woman. So she heard that, and though in shock, she fled from the palace and went out beyond the marketplace to look for the old wise woman that lived there, the one who had a dozen children and dozens of grandchildren, and told her the whole dilemma. My parents, the money, the dragon, what could they do? What should I do? And the old woman said, don't worry, my dear. There's something very simple. She gave her some suggestions of how to do this. And she said, so you must agree. And thereupon came the wedding day, huge banquet celebration, the court, all the people, and the dragon. And Princess R was dressed in the most exquisite wedding gown. But if you could have seen her under the wedding gown, according to the instructions of the old woman, were other wedding gowns, in fact, ten of them. So the ceremony was held. People did what they do at weddings, making toasts, eating, celebrating, although some were rather nervous for the princess. Then the evening came and they retired to the bridal chambers. And the dragon said, well, my dear, is it not time for us to consummate this marriage? And the princess, following the instructions of the old woman, looked back at the dragon and said, yes, my husband, it is. Would you not like me to disrobe for you to see, for us to enjoy our night together? And he said, indeed, I would. And she said, then I have but a small favor to ask of you, that you too would disrobe to join me. The dragon said, why, certainly. She said, in fact, as I take off a layer, I would like to ask you too to take off a layer. Fine, said the dragon. So she took off her beautiful wedding gown and T took off what he put on for the wedding. Fine. Then he looked up, rather surprised to see another wedding gown. She said, oh, I must take this one off too and wrestled it off. And now, being a dragon, he had to take off a layer of scales. You know how snakes and dragons are. Once in a while, they shed their skin. That was fine. Then she took off another wedding gown. And he had to dig a little deeper this time to take off the next layer. And another wedding gown. And this time he had to use his claws to begin to open the next deepest layer in himself and peel it off. Painful though it was, he was motivated. (laughs) She talk off yet another layer and so it went until eight layers were taken off. And as the eighth layer came off the dragon, she began to notice that he was changing shape. And by the time she took off the ninth and then the tenth layer, and he had taken his claws and removed layer by layer to the tenth, the last dragon skin came off and standing there was a radiant and beautiful young prince, as in all such stories. (laughs) And then they followed the old wise woman who had twelve children and many dozen grandchildren's other instructions. (laughs) When we undertake this practice, this honorable practice of presence, we too can feel the layers, the layers of tension, of accumulated patterns, of fears, of doubts, of holding, of wishing, in the body, the emotions, the thoughts, and layer by layer they release when we stay present. And underlying them all already you can sense is a beauty, a nobility, a spacious ease to be found that is who we really are. The two qualities essential for this process of opening. First is presence, attention, an impeccability of presence to be just where we are 
and to surrender to it, to open to it. The second equally essential quality for us to open is loving compassion, the heart's opening. Because all these layers have a purpose, you know, kids. They're protections, like the dragon was protected. For the difficulties and fears and pains of our life, the confusions that we've closed around. Today, in some of the interviews, I heard the depth of their expectation or longing, a deep quality of dukkha, suffering, the places where they'd never forgiven themselves, never even begun to really hold themselves with kindness or compassion, really. The fears of change, of aging, of conflict, of insecurity. And many people were wondering if their heart was big enough to face all of this. The quality that allows us to open deeply in this human life is compassion. And just as metta is the loving kindness of the heart, compassion is that quality of heart related to sorrow, to pain and suffering, the quivering of the heart in the face of pain of another or oneself. In the teachings of the Buddha, each of these qualities has a near enemy that masquerades as it, but is really a separating quality. The near enemy of loving kindness is attachment. You know how attachment can feel like love for a little while, but then turns out not to be? The near enemy to equanimity is indifference feels like equanimity, but it's a fear, a withdrawal. The near enemy to compassion is pity. Oh, that poor person, those people, they're suffering. They're so sad, their situation so difficult, as if it were somehow separate from us. Strawberries are too delicate to be picked by machine. The perfectly ripe ones bruise at even too heavy a human touch. And then one day she realized as she was eating that every strawberry she had ever placed in her mouth, every piece of fruit had been picked by calloused human hands. Every glass of wine, every piece of bread represented someone's knees someone's aching back and hips, someone with a bandana on her wrist to wipe away the sweat. We cannot get away from the truth. The only way we can live is to feed one another. It's not someone else, it's us. And we know this globally and personally even as we sit here in these fortunate circumstances, we know about the troubles in Afghanistan or Burma or Iran or Colombia and our own cities. We know that we're spending more on prisons than on our school systems. We carry the images of CNN and news and the vanishing species in us cellularly. We know this. We carry the truth that the U.S. is the largest exporter of weapons on the face of the earth and that this country, which was founded on nobility and democracy as ideals, 
pays for a lot of its own wealth by selling billions of dollars of killing machines to anybody who will buy them, pretty much. Others do it too, of course, but we're the first. We carry those sorrows in us as surely as aging and sickness, as fear, depression, loss, anger, those things that are our own measure of suffering. How can we heal ourselves and this earth and be free? About a year and a half ago, I was invited to do some teaching at one of the Gorbachev World Forum conferences in San Francisco that are quite remarkable. Various Nobel Prize winners and political and scientific leaders. And being there, I went to various other events beside my own task. And I went one afternoon to a panel that was called Should Crimes Against Humanity Be Forgiven? And I thought, well, maybe this will be international law. Lawyers who work with the UN or something like that. But I was interested. And it wasn't. 500 people crowded into this room in the Fairmont Hotel. And there was a panel and each person on it spoke remarkably personally. A young woman, mostly they were young, who got up and said, I don't know how we can heal. My uncle was pulled out of our hut in the middle of the night by the military and shot in the doorway. Later, we took that earth there and moved it a little bit and made a garden in his honor. Maybe that's how we start, replanting the earth. And a young man from Sarajevo whose best friend was killed by a sniper while they were walking arm in arm to the market. He had stories and stories. And Jose Ramos Horta from East Timor, who said, at least we have to begin by telling the truth. Let me tell you what's happened to my people. And an old man stood up, Russian. He had been in the gulag for 30 years. He said, I had a long time to think when I was there. And he said, I thought about all the suffering of the Russian people and the cause of it, the Stalin who sent me there, the Hitlers, the Brezhnevs. And he said, then I realized that millions of people died earlier in our country in this century in the Bolshevik Revolution. White Russians were killed. So many people. And people died under Stalin and the purges. And then millions died in the Second World War. And after the war was over, he said, when the Russians who'd been put in prison in Germany captured and were prisoners of war were released, they came back and they were sent to Siberia because they'd failed. We put them in the camps. He said, and then I watched decade after decade and I counted and I realized that tens, 20, 30, 40, 50 million of us had died and it wasn't Stalin or Hitler or Brezhnev doing it to us. It was us. By then, hardly anyone in the room could breathe. And the last person to speak was a young man I met years ago in Cambodian refugee camps named An Chon Pond, who started Children of War, an international group where children go from country to country to help one another. 
And he talked about the devastation, the burning of the temples, what happened in the villages, that anyone who was educated, who could read, who was a monk, a dancer, an artist, an intellectual, was killed. And he said, we had one man in our village who was a teacher and musician, an old man, and we knew he was going to be killed. And he called us over when the Khmer Rouge got near there. And he said, I must show you. And for a week, he showed us how to cut bamboo and make the holes to make the traditional Cambodian flute. And then he began to teach us the old melodies. He said, and then some of the young people in the village were forced to execute him and the other elders. And he looked up and he said, I don't know how we can ever forgive such things, but this is the way I can speak to you. And he pulled out of his back pocket this bamboo flute. And he said, no matter what happens to us as human beings and all the stories you have heard, there is something in our spirit that will not die. And so I play for you the melody that was taught to me by my teacher so that even though he is gone, his spirit is not. And he played this kind of haunting flute melody to the room and no one moved for a very long time. The suffering of this world will not be healed by running away. It's compounded by blame and judgment or denial, the unwillingness to face the pain. We who are afraid the heart is not big enough. It becomes our task if we're to live a life of freedom and nobility. And we each have our own to face. The person I spoke to recently who was getting divorced in a terrible fight and messy legal thing. And finally he said, you know, I'm just going to pay the money and give what's not even fair to give. Because if we do a long legal fight, you know who will suffer. It will be our children. And I would rather take the suffering and have it stop with me and not pass it on to them. You'll notice it even in little ways in the retreat, the things that come in us that are so hard to be with, or the little struggles we make with the world around us, the denial or the blame. This was a note someone left me who was on a long retreat in Barry at IMS and couldn't do the walking meditation very well. And I asked her, gave her some other instructions, didn't work. I said, do you really want to learn how to do it? She said, yes. I said, fine, walk all day, forget sitting and just see what happens. Dear Jack, long walking meditation, all morning completed, thank you. Now I can meditate while moving. I thought I might discover why I've been so resistant to it, but circumstances taught me something else. I chose to walk in the annex walking room because it's small, beautiful, and usually quiet. Today, however, it was noisy as hell. There was some guy in there walking like the little engine that could, wearing little noisy boots. Well, thought I, surely he'll be gone when the walking period ends. No such luck. This madman pounded his way through an hour and a half nonstop except when he paused to drink or remove a noisy layer of clothing. I tried metta. Surely he must have a lot of pain to be so driven, etc. Then I realized that I wanted to kill the SOB. <laughs> hating, hating. 
I stood in the middle of the room noting anger. Then I wept, tears, tears. And then I got to the point where I realized whatever problem he had was his, not mine. And after that, I got quiet and he was just sound. And so I walked and breathed and he paced and pounded and pretty soon it was all the same to me. His noise, my breath, the movement of his body, the movement of my own. And after an hour and a half, he left. Then it was incredibly quiet, which was different. Not as much better as I would have expected, mostly just different. Thank you. I believe I've begun to learn something. The opportunities for compassion and the need for it are here all the time in big and little ways. How can we not feel a resonance with one another? It's like the story our dear friend Rodney Smith, who's a hospice director, tells of this man who was on his last days. And one morning, his two adult children came and they said, we've got to talk to you, to the hospice director, because we just learned a terrible thing that my father's youngest brother was killed last night in a car accident. And we don't know whether to tell him or not because he's so close to death. Maybe it would disturb him. They thought about, decided, let's not tell him. Leave him die in peace. So they went into the room, Rodney and the two, said good morning to their father, sat with him a little bit, and he looked at them and said, don't you have something to tell me? What do you mean? They asked. He said, my brother, he died last night. They said, how did you know? And he said, oh, I've been talking to him. And then he finished up his business with his children and a short while later closed his eyes and died. Compassion arises not because we're supposed to be compassionate, but because we are all connected in an inseparable oneness. It is the truth. And as the dragon skins fall away, even in a moment, we feel it. We look for it in our practice, in one another, in our teachers. In India, sometimes that's the communication from teacher to student. It's called the glance of mercy. These images of Ramana Maharshi, who used so few words, but he would look at someone with so much love and compassion for them that they'd never given themselves and their whole life would change. This is the task before us if we are to open, truly to be free, is to touch the sorrows and this human predicament with that depth of kindness. I stand by a bed, writes Richard Seltzer, a surgeon at Yale, where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clown-like. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She will be this way from now on. The surgeon had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands opposite me. Together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, private. Who are they who gaze and touch each other so generously? The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say it will. It's because the nerve was cut. She nods, is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. 
it's kind of cute. And all at once I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with the God. And then he bent to kiss her crooked mouth and I so close I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that their kiss still works. And I remember that the gods appeared in ancient Greece as mortals, and I hold my breath and let the wonder in. Abraham Maslow, one of the founders of humanistic and transpersonal psychology, talked about a pyramid of human needs. The bottom was for food and shelter, and then social needs and creative needs. And at the top, when you had food and shelter, and then your social needs were met, at the top of the pyramid were your spiritual needs. I'm told he rethought it at the end of his life. I'm glad he did, because it was wrong. Even if our needs are not met and we're hungry or aching, when a child falls and cries in front of us, there is a deep and natural instinct of compassion. With or without food, it is still there in us. I remember being in India with Wes Nisker and making taping, taping for a radio show for National Public Radio on spirituality and social responsibility. In Calcutta, we found a rickshaw puller who spoke English. We interviewed him. He was a lovely man. He'd been pulling a rickshaw for 20 years. He was like 51 years old. And he talked about his work and he said his big fear was that he would get sick, that he got sick once the year before for 10 days and he was supporting 11 people. And after about a week, their money started to run out. Even if our needs are not met, there is still this longing to touch one another with compassion. And Frank put it this way. I keep my ideals because in spite of everything, I still believe that people are really good at heart. I simply can't build up my hopes on a foundation consisting of confusion, misery, death. I can feel the sufferings of millions and yet if I look up into the heavens, I think that it will come right and this cruelty too will in its time end and that peace and tranquility will again return in its season to the earth. You can begin to notice it as you sit, how as we open to the breath and body, to feelings and thoughts, to walking and eating and the people around us, how compassion opens as consciousness and awareness opens, this shift of identity that's so mysterious because it's my pain at first, my back pain, my knee pain, And then it becomes the pain, the pain we share. And my body, my emotions and mind, trying to do something for ourselves. You heard that little joke about the person who went to, in Borders bookstore up to the instruction, I mean to the the counter information and said, could you please tell me where the self-help section is? And the clerk said, I'm sorry, that would kind of defeat the purpose, wouldn't it? (laughs) We start, my body, my pain, my emotions, you know, and then it gets a little bigger, my family, my friends and loved ones, my community, my country, my planet somehow my brothers and sisters, all kinds of beings, the planet, 
I think of that woman naming herself Butterfly who spent a year in that redwood tree in Humboldt County to keep it from being cut down. She's still there. You think you're on retreat. (laughs) Think about that. What a retreat. So how do we touch not our pain, but the pain? Overcome any bitterness because you are not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you, say the Sufis. Like the mother of the world who carries the pain of the world in her heart, each of us is endowed with a certain measure of cosmic pain. And you are called upon to meet it in joy instead of self-pity. We have all awakened with Buddha, been crucified with Jesus, killed and robbed with Genghis Khan or Hitler. How far you go in life, said George Washington Carver, depends on your being tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving, and tolerant of the weak and the strong, because someday in life, you will have been all of these. We can't really separate ourselves from others. We all share this common humanity. And as our meditation deepens, guess what? Our awareness of suffering deepens. And our awareness of beauty deepens as well. They both come as the heart opens. One of my favorite stories is of the Tibetan Gyuto Tantric monks choir. You know the monks who sing with all the overtones. They were invited by some friends through Seva Foundation to go into San Quentin prison not so far from here to sing together with the San Quentin Gospel Choir. And we've had the San Quentin Gospel Choir come out here. They sing beautifully. There are all these big black, you know, men, African American men, many of whom have been in solitary, led really hard lives, and then in some moment, were touched by the Spirit, were born again. They become fervent Christians and they sing this gospel music. It's beautiful. But the day the monks came, the person arranging it became nervous. They said, what if these guys in San Quentin look at these monks as heathens? Because they're all, you know, powerful Christians now. Maybe these are heathens. You know, and then looked at them and said, "Here, are these big guys have been working out with weights." And when the when the when the Tibetan tantric choir walked in, it was these tiny little men wearing skirts, right? <laughs> so there was some little dilemma here. But the person was wise and said, "Before they sing for you, I want to introduce these Tibetan men. Almost every one of them has spent years in prison." And many of them were tortured in prison. And then they either escaped or released. And they all had to walk on foot over the highest mountains on earth, sometimes with only rags around their feet, to do this in order to come to some freedom. But even now in the monastery, they cannot go home. They cannot return to their monasteries, to their loved ones, to their villages, they are in exile. And what has kept them going through all of this, through the prison and torture and walking over the highest mountains and being in exile, is their songs and their prayers. And they would like to sing those to you now. And then the monks, oh, began their chanting. And then the San Quentin Gospel Choir rocked out. You know, and then they finished and they hugged one another and they loved one another because they saw in each other that they were the same. On the night of his enlightenment, 
the Buddha looked out across the earth after awakening, wondering what to do, whether to teach. And he saw beings everywhere wanting to be happy, yet doing the very things that created further unhappiness. And he felt their suffering as his own. This was his compassion. I too have done this, am this. You know, in Buddhist countries, they call everybody by family names. Uncle Bill Clinton, right? Or Auntie Barbara Boxer, Auntie Diane Feinstein, Uncle Mayor, Grandfather General. Not just because it's a way of speaking, but because it's true. Our brothers and sisters, mother, father, brother, sister. And as the Buddha saw his brothers and sisters suffering, he began to weep. And the tears in one story fell to the earth. And when they touched the earth, they sprung alive as Tara or Kuan Yin, the goddess of infinite compassion. And many times we begin a retreat or sittings with the vow, the bodhisattva vow. Beings are numberless. I vow to awaken for the sake of them all, with them all, awaken them all. Got this letter in kid handwriting. Dear Jack, I came to your meditation center with my school a month ago or two. When I went, I did not take any of the meditating seriously, spelled C-E-R-I-O-S, till I started to get in big fights with my parents and myself. I recalled the time we spent meditating and how good it felt because I felt so alone in my little world. So I took the little knowledge I had about meditating one night after a long fight with my mom and went out behind our house and started to meditate. I tried to do what you told us to, and when I opened my eyes and went back into my house, I was not as mad. I don't know what it is about meditating that helps me, but it helps me with my anger and my fear. So I thank you for the gift you gave us students. It's so simple. Everybody, our brother, our sister, our mother, our father, And it's wonderful when this grace of opening comes through someone we love, through the response of the heart and caring, through special rituals or occasions. It can be evoked, touched. But also, it can be cultivated. It can be practiced. During my second month of nursing school, our professor gave us a pop quiz. I was a conscientious student, breezed through the questions till I read the last one. What's the first name of the woman who cleans the school? Surely this was some kind of joke. I'd seen the cleaning woman several times. She was tall, dark-haired in her 50s, but how would I know her name? I handed the paper in, leaving the question blank. Before class ended, one student asked if the last question would count toward our grade. Absolutely, said the professor. In your careers, you will meet many people, all whom are significant. They deserve your attention and care, even if all you do is smile and say hello. I'll never forget that lesson. I also learned that her name was Dorothy it can be cultivated like metta itself. The traditional practice, just as we do the well-wishing of loving-kindness or the practice of generosity, the practice for compassion is very simple. And we'll probably do it sometime later in this retreat as we develop the metta move to compassion. It's to visualize someone that we care for 
ourselves or another person, benefactor or child, and their difficulty or their pain. And then to repeat in our own heart, may you be freed from this pain or suffering. May you be held in compassion. Very, very simple. Often, in this way of practice, it's good to start with someone who's innocent. Start with children whose mothers can't feed them. Because we know the birthright of every child is to be loved and cared for and held. And then when we see the value of life in a child, we can turn to another being and another and realize the value in that life. May you too be freed from this pain and suffering. And may your sorrows be held in compassion. And we practice it. You know, in the retreats that I do with the young men from inner cities, ghettos, gang kids who drop out, one of the things that's almost always true is that they got there because some mentor, some friend brought them. They were ready to leave the gang life. And that there was somebody in their life that saw them. A grandmother, a neighbor, the custodian at the school, somebody who saw them and for a moment loved them. And maybe that's all it takes is that moment to turn a life around. So as we naturally sense it with children, we can practice it. A growing mercy and caring and compassion extended to each situation where we see fear and confusion and pain and suffering. Not only may you be well of loving kindness, May you be free from the pain and suffering. Holding it in compassion. There's a big banyan tree, a Bodhi tree in Sri Lanka that I remember because underneath it is a saying from the Buddha that says, see how this tree offers its shade and fragrance to all who would come, even to the man who wields the axe to cut it down. To move through this human life and offer compassion is a free heart to every being in every situation. And you can sense it as you walk on the earth in walking period, as feelings and memories pains and difficulties come in you or as you see them around you. This natural altruism. The Mahamudra text which says the realization of the final insight in which you learn how to leave everything and every passion entirely alone neither cutting it off nor falling under its spell but utterly free in its presence. And now there is born in you exceeding compassion for all those living beings who do not realize the freedom of their own minds. And you will spend your life working for the sake of these others, but all your meditations have now cleansed away any idea that these others really exist as separate from yourself. I think it's in there like water. It just comes out of us like the grass that grows through the cracks in the cement. That it is who we are. It's like the image of the man that I've had on my refrigerator for so long with the two grocery bags standing in front of the Chinese tanks 
and that whole line of tanks stopped. He didn't plan it. He just had to do it. If we are willing to really listen with our hearts and practice with our hearts, there is no place to go but compassion. At this conference, one of the people, the Gorbachev conference, who spoke on the future of childhood, there were a few, Marion Wright Edelman was one, various people, was Jane Goodall, the naturalist. She talked about good chimpanzee mothering. It was really wonderful and showed movies and slides. And then she said something amazing. She said, you know, in the life of a songbird, if that bird is taken, the egg is taken from the nest and hatched and raised by other birds than its own kind so that it doesn't hear its own song in the first month of its life, it will never be able to sing its own song. This was her way of wanting people to care for early childhood because it's so important how we care for our children. But for humans, there's an amazing thing. Even if we never got the song, and some of us didn't, even if we never heard it, we can still learn it. It's in there to be touched and evoked and brought into life because in the end it is who we are. And each moment of awareness becomes also a moment of care or compassion. Not in a big way, but in a simple moment-to-moment intimacy. Like Mother Teresa who said, I never look at the masses as my responsibility. I look at the individual. I can love only one person at a time. I can feed only one person at a time. Just one. This one. This one. So you begin. I begin. I picked up one person. And maybe if I didn't pick up that one person, I wouldn't have picked up 42,000. The whole work is only a drop in the ocean, but if I didn't put the drop in, the ocean would be one drop less. Same thing for you. Same thing in your family, in your community, wherever you are. Just begin. One, one, one. Or Gandhi who said, I am convinced in the unity of all people and all things. And therefore I believe that if one person gains spiritually, the whole world gains. And if one person falls, the whole world falls to that extent. There is a nobility in every being, a true nature, a Buddha nature. And here we are given the circumstances to let it shine, to touch it, to bring it forth, to rest in it, to learn to trust it, moment by moment, each moment. And it will change our lives and change the lives of all we touch. When James spoke last night of the many forms of energy, effort, to be present, to really be here. One of the great sources of the strength or courage that this practice takes is this compassion, a deep compassion for ourselves, for all human beings, really for all that lives. And when we feel it, 
we can't do anything else but be present. A few years ago at the Seattle Special Olympics, nine contestants, all physically or mentally disabled, assembled at the starting line for the 100-yard dash. At the gun, they all started out not exactly in a dash, but with the relish to run the race, to finish, to win. All that is except for one boy who stumbled on the asphalt, turned over a couple of times and began to cry. The other eight heard the boy cry. They slowed down and paused. Then they all turned around and went back, every one of them. One girl with Down syndrome bent down and kissed him, bent over him and touched him and said, maybe this will make it better. They all stood around him. And then finally, all of them, all nine of them linked arms. And he got up and they walked together to the finish line. And everyone in the stadium stood and the cheering went on for ten minutes. We don't really practice just for ourselves. It's not possible. Every moment of forgiveness, respect, compassion, loving kindness that grows in us, every moment of awareness and freedom becomes the way that we are. And when we leave with our families and loved ones and friends, with the trees and the earth around us, it will have changed us and it becomes our gift to this earth. You can't practice alone. You practice together with and for all beings. Let's sit for a moment. Um, my daughter gave me this, uh, my teenage daughter, some months ago. I read it here, actually, in the winter. I'll read it once more, and then we'll do our little chant. Dear God, it's a letter. So far today, I've done all right. I haven't gossiped, haven't lost my temper, haven't been greedy, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent. I'm really glad about that. But in a few minutes, God, I'm going to get out of bed. <laughs> And from then on, I'm probably going to need a lot more help. Thank you. So I want to thank you also because we do need a lot of help and I think we do it together. So our chant before we go is this simple one. The word is namo, which means to bow to or pay respects. Bow to the fact of change and bow to your life as it is and bow to those you love and bow to those who are struggling and bow to those who are causing difficulty um, to pay one's respect to life as it is it really allows us to open our heart of compassion. So we'll chant Namo for just a little bit and then go out into the spring, summer evening. Na mo na
harmony. Na. and your donations, your spirit, and um, the pleasure of company. I hope this week ahead that you um, can rest in that place that knows that everything changes and find the compassion and an ease in it. Good night. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.